The Third British Empire by Alfred Zimmern. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Preface. The lectures which form the substance of this volume were delivered at Columbia University, New York, under the auspices of the Julius Beer Foundation in January 1925. In revising them for publication in the summer of 1926, I have retained the original spoken form, but have freely incorporated references to recent developments. AZ, October 1926. Preface to the Second Edition The first edition was published just before the Imperial Conference of 1926, in which the developments described in the first three lectures reached a climax and the new relationship between the self-governing communities within the British Empire was formally defined. The need for a new edition has enabled the book to be brought up to date both in this and in other respects. On one special point, a word of explanation is needed. The extract from the Kenya White paper cited in the appendix to Lecture 1 was selected as a recent and clearly enunciated statement of the established British policy in the non-self-governing empire. This policy is, however, now under reconsideration as regards areas such as Kenya, where the climate admits of white settlement. AZ, August 31, 1927. Preface to the Third Edition In preparing the book for a new edition after a lapse of seven years, it has been found impossible to bring it up to date by a mere revision. Not only, therefore, has the text been corrected where necessary and footnotes added, but in the case of Lectures 2 and 4, new material has been introduced outside the original framework. What has made this necessary has been the general movement of world affairs rather than any change in the spirit or structure of the empire as described in the earlier editions. There has indeed been rapid evolution within its borders, as exemplified by the enactment of the Statute of Westminster, but it has been along lines already laid down. But outside there has been something more akin to revolution, both in thought and in action, with far-reaching results in many parts of the world, on the structure and working of government, and on the conduct of policy, not least in the economic field. The result has been to modify considerably the relations between the British League of Nations and the larger league needed to maintain law and order throughout the world and to provide a secure basis for the economic interdependence, which grew up under the tutelage of British sea power in the 19th century. A collective system with these two objects in view remains as indispensable as ever and is fully within the reach of practical statesmanship. But we cannot hope for its effective establishment except between governments and peoples who share the same political values. For only upon such a foundation can the confidence needed for a permanent partnership be built up. The Third British Empire was not built in a day. It was not the product of the Imperial Conference of 1926 or of the Statute of Westminster. These constitutional landmarks did no more than register results attained by a process of inward development. It is perhaps the principal lesson of the last seven years that the more comprehensive association upon which the hopes of millions in the post-war generation have become fixed can only pass from aspiration to reality through some 
similar process of political and spiritual growth, and that this can best be fostered between peoples whose domestic policies, however they may differ owing to local circumstances, are such as to constitute an apprenticeship for cooperative action on a wider stage. AZ, Oxford, April 28, 1934. Lecture 1. The Third British Empire. In 1914, there were numbered among the world's sovereign states a British Empire, a German Empire, a Russian Empire, an Ottoman Empire, and an Austro-Hungarian monarchy presided over by an emperor. London, Berlin, St. Petersburg, as it was then still called, Constantinople, and Vienna were all centers of empire. Today there is a German Republic, an Austrian Republic, a Turkish Republic, and a Federation of Republics on the old Russian soil. But there still remains a British Empire. The questions to which we shall be seeking answers in these lectures are three in number. Firstly, why has the British Empire survived at a time when these other empires have dissolved and disappeared? Secondly, how has it survived? In what form has it survived? Thirdly, what must it do to justify its survival in an age which seems destined to dissolve empires? Why has it survived? I might give you an easy answer. I might say that it's because it had its associate in the war the power of the United States, because it was fighting on the side that was bound to win. But that is only to push the inquiry a stage farther back. The true answer to our first question is more fundamental. The British Empire survived the war because it had in it a principle of vitality which the other empires lacked. And that principle, that seed of continuing life, is the spirit of liberty. The British Empire lives today because its institutions are free institutions. It survives as one of the world's guardians of liberty. But liberty is not a dead possession. It is an active power, a developing power, and at times like the present, a transforming power. If the storm which broke over the world and swept the other empires away left the British Empire in being, it did not leave it unchanged. It has in fact transformed it. The British Empire of today is not the British Empire of 1914. It is something new. How new, neither the outside world nor even its own citizens have yet adequately realized. Future historians looking back on the history of the British Empire overseas will note three periods in its life and growth. They will point to the First Empire, taking its rise in the early settlements on this Atlantic coast, a colonial empire of the older type, common to Spain, Portugal, France, and other states of continental Europe. That empire was abruptly extinguished, or at least summarily curtailed by your predecessors in 1776 or thereabouts and it failed because it followed too closely the prevailing imperial model. Why is it that we shall soon be celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, whereas only a hundred years divide us from the decisive battle in the struggle of the South American empire-breaker, Bolivar? The answer is simple. It is to be found in the transforming principle of liberty which caused the subjects of the British crown to grow restless and finally to shake off the irksome yoke two generations before the same infectious spirit had spread to the subjects of Spain and Portugal. 
After the disruption of 1776, however, the British Empire was given a second chance. Out of the remnants of its old dominion in Canada, the West Indies, and elsewhere, and out of the pioneering work of 19th century explorers, traders, and administrators, a new and second British Empire came into existence. That empire was based on British sea power, the silent and undisputed supremacy of the British Navy throughout the oceans of the world. Its development was stimulated by the immense and rapid growth of international commerce, first in Britain and then in other manufacturing countries. For as an open-door empire, it provided a market for all comers. And its maintenance was ensured by the fact that place was found in its institutions for the planting of the seed of liberty. The Second British Empire reached its culmination of its power and of its development in the Great War. And now, a Third British Empire has come into existence, new in its form, new in the conditions which it has to face within and without its borders, new even in its name. For the British Empire of 1914 has now become the British Commonwealth of Nations. The new designation, put forward in print shortly before 1914, and popularized by General Smuts in a series of war speeches, was consecrated by its use in the Irish Treaty of 1921, and is now passed into current use. It is with this Third Empire, this Commonwealth of Nations, that we are concerned in these lectures. What is this Third British Empire? I was asked this question not too long ago by the Dean of the Law Faculty of a celebrated university in Central Europe. Can you tell me, he said, whether the British Empire is a single state or a group of states? Conscious of the effective retorts that his legal mind might have in store for me, if I gave a direct answer either way, I told him that I would prefer not to define the existing constitutional position, but that I would be happy to explain to him how it had arisen. I can exhibit the present phase, I said, as a moment and a long development, but I would rather leave the juridical characterization of it to you. An equal caution, not to say ambiguity, marks the definition recently offered by one of the men who had been most closely associated with the passing of the second empire into the third. Our commonwealth, said Sir Robert Borden, the conservative ex-premier of Canada, in his address at his installation as Chancellor of Queen's University, Ontario, may be regarded as a League of Nations, owing a single allegiance and possessing international relations that are still in a state of development. The loopholes in this formula leap at once to the legal eye. At once a commonwealth and a league. I can hear my continental friend interposing, surely that is a contradiction in terms, and the single allegiance. To what or to whom is it due? If to the crown, in what capacity? Sir Robert Borden knows as well as any European jurist that his definition is not watertight. But to all such implied questionings, he has an answer in a later sentence of his address. We may be confident that the practical genius of the British people, which has never failed in any need, will find some satisfactory method of meeting this difficulty. Our object here, however, is not to meet the difficulty, but to state it. But the task of mere statement is hard enough when the problem is so elusive. In attempting to describe the Third British Empire, I am reminded of the old Greek philosopher Heraclitus, 
whose cardinal maxim was that everything flows, or in other words, all life is flux. No, nor even once, said one of his pupils, for it has become a different river by the time you have crossed it. It was in May 1924 that I accepted the invitation to deliver these lectures and to describe the transformation that has taken place in the British Empire. But hardly a week has passed since that time without some further development. Some of these recent happenings I shall indicate in due course, but I shall not overemphasize them. The only possible plan under the circumstances is to ignore side issues and back eddies and to direct your attention to the main flow and direction of events in this new and epoch-making development upon which the British Empire has entered as a result of the Great War. Let us begin by surveying the British Empire as a whole. The British Empire is the largest single political community in the world. It includes within its borders one quarter of the inhabitants of the globe, of whom the vast majority are governed from London. Thus, when His Majesty the King transfers the seals of office from one Prime Minister to another, the governing direction of a large portion of humanity is changed. It is worthwhile pausing to reflect upon the solemn and indeed almost appalling implications of this plain statement of fact. The responsibility of governing the British Empire is incomparably greater than any political responsibility that falls or has ever fallen on any other body of statesmen. Hence the essential qualities of true statesmanship. Knowledge, judgment, forethought, patience, single-mindedness, valuable as they are in any community, are indispensable to Britain and her public men. For the mistakes that occur from the absence of these qualities in the supreme direction of British affairs are not local and isolated in their effects. They set up ripples that run throughout the oceans of the world, and no man can foretell what repercussions they may call forth in this or that corner of the king's dominions and beyond them. For the British Empire is not only the greatest political community in the world, it is also the most diversified. An actual population is not much greater than China. But whereas China is a single compact area, the British Empire extends all over the world and includes almost every variety of humankind. It is a European empire, the island of Great Britain. Ireland, the Channel Islands off the coast of France, Gibraltar, Malta, Cyprus. It is an Asiatic empire, Aden, India, Ceylon, Burma the Malay Peninsula, British North Borneo, Sarawak, Hong Kong, and at any rate, pending its retrocession to China under the terms of one of the Washington Conference Agreements, the little naval station of Weihai Wei and its surrounding territory. It is an African empire, British South Africa, British West Africa, British East Africa, and British North East Africa including British Somaliland, and that still undetermined territory, the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. It is an Australian empire, the continent of Australia, Tasmania, the dominion of New Zealand, and numerous Pacific islands. Finally, as I need hardly remind you, it is an American empire, the dominion of Canada, Newfoundland, the British West Indies, British Honduras in Central America, British Guiana in South America, and the Falkland Islands. 
Side by side with its geographical variety, consider its racial variety. It includes white men, brown men, yellow men, black men. Consider its religious variety. It includes Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Burma, for instance, Jews, Parsis, and a large number of primitive pagans. And among its Christians, consider the varieties of doctrine and worship. It is a Protestant empire. Its monarch being by law the supreme governor of one Protestant body in England and member of another in Scotland. Yet, although an ancient statue forbids the throne to a Roman Catholic, it is also a Catholic empire. It includes compact Roman Catholic populations in Ireland, in Malta, and in French Canada, not to mention a large scattered Catholic population in Australia and elsewhere. It includes in Cyprus a community belonging to the Greek Orthodox Church, and in Canada communities belonging to the Inuit Church. Consider its cultural variety. Adopting the current, if unsatisfactory, division of the continental European peoples into the Germanic, the Latin, and the Slav forms of culture and language, we find the Germanic strongly represented in Dutch South Africa, the Latin in French Canada, while the Slav, until recently a stranger under the British flag, is making rapid headway in Western Canada. Turn now from race, religion, and culture to government, with which we are more specially concerned. Constitutionally speaking, the British Empire can perhaps be best described as a procession. It consists of a large variety of communities at a number of different stages in their advance towards complete self-government. It is by observing the movement of this procession and comparing the constitutional position of the various British communities today with what it was in 1914 that we shall best realize what is meant by the passing of the Second Empire. In 1914, the British Empire consisted of three governmental groups. The first consisted of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. It was the electorate, then still a male electorate, of those two islands which chose the imperial parliament to which the imperial government was responsible. Next, in the second group of the procession, there were the self-governing colonies, or as most, though not all of them, were called the dominions. These were communities which had been by law and custom granted by the imperial government complete independence in dealing with their own internal affairs. But they did not claim a similar independence in respect to external affairs. Still less did they claim to be sovereign states. This class included in 1914 Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Newfoundland. In the third and most numerous stage of the procession, there were communities which were dependent upon the imperial government, both as regards external and internal affairs. That is to say, they were governed by officials receiving their instructions from London, either from the colonial office or, in certain cases, the foreign office, or, in the case of India, the Indian office, or, in respect of important issues of policy, as a result of a decision by the imperial cabinet itself. Within this third group, however, there was great variety of procedure. There were really five separate stages observable in this part of the procession. First came the communities enjoying full representative government, as contrasted with responsible government. The difference between representative and responsible institutions is one of the most fundamental distinctions in the British political system. 
representative institutions go back to Simon de Montfort's parliament. Responsible institutions date from the struggle of the 17th century, which was fought out on the issue of the responsibility of the crown, that is, of the executive, to the representative legislature. Now it so happens that before that issue had been decided in Great Britain, parliaments, as men then understood them, had been set up in three British communities, which have preserved their institutions unchanged from that day to this. These are Bermuda, Barbados, and the Bahama Island group off of the coast of Florida. The people of Bermuda, whose boast it is that their assembly is second only in antiquity as a British legislative body to the House of Commons at Westminster, do not control their executive, because at the time of its establishment in 1620, neither they nor the colonists on the adjoining American mainland thought of questioning the supreme rights of the crown in this regard. Next came communities in which the deliberative body, here called the Legislative Council, contains side-by-side side with officials and nominated unofficial members, a majority of elected members. This is not representative government in the strict sense, but is a practical approximation to it. The communities so governed in 1914 were British Guiana and Cyprus. In the third group came colonies where the majority on the Legislative Council consisted of officials and nominated members, but where a minority of elected members had been introduced. These communities were in 1914-5 in number. Fiji, Jamaica, the Leeward Islands Federation, Malta, and Mauritius. Their wide dispersion illustrates the extraordinary geographical variety of the British Empire and the way in which it is working out constitutional experiments simultaneously under widely different conditions. The same system was in force in most of the provinces of India. Next, there was a group of colonies in whose government the elective principle found no place at all. The legislative council in such cases consists wholly of appointed persons, some of them actual government officials, others private citizens nominated by the government. Sixteen British colonies were governed in this way in 1914, their councils being controlled in one case by an unofficial majority, and in the rest by a majority of pure officials. In the fifth group fall the colonies and protectorates, twelve in number in 1914, governed autocratically without any legislative council whatsoever. Gibraltar, for instance, is ruled by a governor who invites no one to share his deliberations and reports solely to the home government. Before concluding this survey of the empire in 1914, we must mention two anomalous cases which do not fall into any of the above categories, or indeed, strictly speaking, into the British Empire at all. The first of these is Egypt, which was in 1914 governed by a British consul general aided by a number of British advisers attached to the various Egyptian ministries, and by a considerable British administrative staff, both central and local. The second is the Sudan, which was under a condominium, a joint sovereignty of Britain and Egypt, Britain being, however, in effective control. The affairs of both these territories were dealt with in London in 1914, not by the colonial office, but by the foreign office. What reaction did the war exercise upon this heterogeneous community? It produced two effects, both equally unexpected by the superficial observer. 
The first was a spontaneous and practically universal outburst of loyalty and enthusiasm. In Germany and elsewhere, it was widely believed that the British Empire would fall to pieces in the moment of danger, or at the very least, that its more distant communities would remain uninterested and impassive when its European center was exposed to attack. Had not John Morley, in a famous review of Seeley's expansion of England, declared it unthinkable that Australia could ever interest herself in the neutrality of Belgium? The response from the overseas empire, however, white and non-white alike, not only gave the lie to the pessimists, but outdid the expectations of the optimists. All parts of the empire, the dominions, India, and the widely scattered colonies, vied with one another in sending troops, labor battalions, money contributions, and gifts of every kind. Indian troops not only took part in the war in Western Europe, but also in the Dardanelles, in Palestine, Mesopotamia, where the Muslims among them were pitted against their own co-religionists. This spontaneous response of the peoples of the empire to the call of war was a fine justification of the work of generations of British administrators. It vindicated, and will always vindicate, the record of the Second British Empire. But at the same time, little as it was realized in the flush of excitement in 1914, it ushered in its close. For war, as the Greek historian said long ago, is the most forcible of teachers, and the experience to which it exposed men in the British Empire no less than in Russia set up questionings to which, whether soon or late, there could be only one reply. A struggle whose watchword was freedom must bring greater freedom to those who waged it. Thus, the war, which began by an unexpected manifestation of the unity of the empire, ended by an equally unexpected assertion of the claims of its various peoples. Yet this phenomenon should not have surprised any attentive student of British history. I remember sometime about the middle of the war listening to a conversation in which Sir Robert Borden, at the time Premier of Canada, took part. Someone had remarked to him that this impressive demonstration of the loyalty of the dominions to the empire would surely pave the way for a project of imperial federation. I well recall the Canadian Premier's reflective reply. I'm not so sure, he said. The result may be exactly the opposite of what you're imagining. It may be that the spirit of national pride which the war is evolving will create psychological conditions unanticipated by you in Great Britain and favor processes of decentralization rather than of centralization. The Canadian Premier knew his people better than the British imperialist. Nationality is a force that knows no frontiers, and the effect, the natural and healthy effect, of the part played in the war by Canada, India, and other parts of the empire was to rouse the citizens of those countries to a more vivid consciousness and a keener sense of their national dignity. If the British North American Act of 1867 gave Canada unity in her political institutions, the common work and effort of the war created a new and deeper unity throughout the far-flung provinces between the Atlantic and the Pacific. It is Ypres and Vimy which have made Canadians conscious of their proud place in the world and set Canada among the peoples who are nations in their own right. Self-determination, in the true sense of a much-abused word, is not a political principle but a spiritual principle, 
and it is right and natural that it should be as potent under the British flag as in other regions where it has won more resounding victories. Let us now consider the constitutional results which followed from the working of this awakened force of nationality in the British Commonwealth of Nations. Its first and most significant result has been to elicit from the imperial government a definite assertion of the aim towards which British rule over other peoples is directed. The Second British Empire did much good in its day. It established the principle of the trusteeship of the ruler on behalf of the ruled. But for all his good intentions and earnest efforts, the British administrator under the Second Empire had no clear aim set before him. It was an empire without a philosophy, and the lack of a philosophy made itself felt more and more in the realm of practical policy, both in small matters and in great. For the days in which it was possible for a colonial power to govern wisely without a governing direction have passed once and for all. The age which has seen hereditary monarchies overthrown in Russia, Turkey, Persia, and China will only tolerate trusteeship if conceived in terms of developing liberty. The pronouncement by the Secretary of State for India in the House of Commons on the 20th of August, 1917, in which responsible government is set forth as the goal of British policy in India, is a landmark in British imperial history. It marks the definite repudiation of the idea that there can be, under the British flag, one form of constitutional evolution for the West and another for the East or one for the white races and another for the non-white. It marks the imperial government's realization of the fact that the principle of nationality with which the British people, from the days of Byron onwards, have been in sympathy in its European manifestations, is valid also for India, and if for India, for the other non-white British peoples also. It is true that the pronouncement of August 1917 did no more than state a philosophy in a developing program. India is not yet self-governing, and no date has been yet set for that consummation. But that the pronouncement is not simply an idle formula, but represents a genuine and active policy, is clear from the whole record of British imperial policy since the war. A comparison between the groups of 1914 procession and the grouping of today reveals how very marked and widespread are the changes which have already come about as the result of the conscious acceptance of this newer philosophy of empire. Take the first group. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland has disappeared. Its place is taken by the unit known as Great Britain and Northern Ireland, or, to speak more strictly, six counties of northeastern Ireland. It is the men and women of the larger island in these six counties, of the more smaller, who now form the electorate of the mother country and sustain the burden of imperial taxation and defense. Thus, the legislative union between England and Scotland, which represents a harmonious and mutually beneficial cooperation, remains whilst the legislative union between Great Britain and Ireland, which was carried through by force and corruption and never won the assent or assured the cooperation of the Irish people, has been repealed. The next group, consisting in 1914 of self-governing colonies, has split up into two sharply marked divisions. The first consists of six communities which have been admitted in their own right to membership in an international league of states 
which has come into existence since the war. There are in the League of Nations seven British units. This is what is officially called the British Empire. And there are Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the Irish Free State, and India. These six members, excluding Great Britain, themselves fall into three classes. There are the four young Western nations. I call them Western, although three of them are in the Southern Hemisphere. Four communities which were classed before the war as self-governing dominions, but have now been advanced in status by their international recognition in the League. Then there is the Irish Free State, which is the political expression not of a young nation, but of an old nation. I spent some weeks not long ago in the little French town of Luxil, where there is an abbey founded by a great Irish teacher over a thousand years ago. It is rather difficult to class the national personality represented by St. Columba with that of peoples who have sprung up from overseas migration within the last few generations. The third class in the British membership of the League is represented by India, whose position there is at present hardly amenable to political logic. For the League is professedly limited to states, dominions, or colonies, which are fully self-governing, and India is decidedly not within that class. The Indian delegates at League assemblies and conferences are not responsible either directly or indirectly to an Indian parliament, but are the nominees of the British executive, which still has the final voice in Indian policy. But the admission of India to the League is perhaps best explained as the first indication of India's future status rather than an honor due to that which she occupies at present. In the next division come the two self-governing colonies which might claim membership in the League of Nations, if they so thought fit, but which have not yet done so. These are Newfoundland, Britain's oldest colony, which retains the name with pride, and southern Rhodesia, her youngest which received responsible government in 1921 and has since decided for the present to remain outside the Union of South Africa. Next comes a small group which did not exist in 1914, two territories utterly different one from the other under a system of semi-responsible government designed by political architects since 1914. This is the system known as diarchy, the small community of Malta and most of the provinces of the great subcontinent of India manage part of their affairs, known as transferred subjects, under a system of responsible government on the Dominion model, while another part, known as reserved subjects, remains under the old non-responsible system. This device of a halfway house towards complete responsible government was adopted to avoid the deadlocks inherent in the full development of representative government. It has led to difficulties and even deadlocks of its own. But with these, we are not concerned in this purely descriptive account. Pass down the list and you will find that a number of changes, small in themselves but cumulative in their effect, have been made in the government of individual colonies. Thus, in the West Indies, the elective principle has been introduced in Trinidad and some other islands. In Nigeria, voters in the towns of Lagos and Calabar now elect members to the Legislative Council of the colony, while on the other side of the African continent, in Kenya, the white settlers, the Indian settlers, and the Arabs of the coast 
Now each contribute their quota of elected representatives to a council in which the official members, whose duty it is to safeguard the interests of the African majority, retain a controlling voice. It is worth noting that, as a somewhat surprising oversight, that the elective principle conceded to the African inhabitants of Lagos and Calabar has not so far been extended to the colony of Hong Kong. Recent events suggest, however, that attention is likely paid to the constitutional position in that community. Another new development is the holding of a conference of administrators of the non-self-governing empire, including India. First summoned in May 1927, this colonial conference, dealing with the problems of an area of 2 million square miles, inhabited by 50 million people, all but 4 million of them living in the tropics, will now meet regularly every three years, following upon the Imperial Conference. The exact position is made clear in the following table. The following table has two columns, one labeled 1914 and the other labeled 1927. I will read them from left to right at the appropriate transition points. 1914. 1. United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. 1927. 1. United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. 2. Self-governing dominions and colonies. Canada, Australia, South Africa. New Zealand and Newfoundland. 1927, one members of the League of Nations. A, Great Britain, including Northern Ireland, Irish Free State, Canada, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand. B, India, Constitutional Anomaly, 1934, likely soon to be corrected. Two, self-governing colonies, not members of the League of Nations. A, members of the Imperial Conference, Newfoundland, 1934 temporarily governed by a nominated commission, B. Represented at the Imperial Conference by the Secretary of State for Dominion Affairs, Southern Rhodesia, 3. Colony enjoying responsible government as regards its internal affairs, Malta, 1934. The Constitution was temporarily suspended in November 1933. A similar system of semi-responsible government exists under the Government of India Act of 1919 in most of the provincial governments of India. 1914. 3. Non-self-governing colonies. A. With wholly elected House of Assembly and nominated Legislative Council, Bahamas, Barbados, and Bermuda. 1927. 4. Non-self-governing colonies. A. With wholly elected House of Assembly and nominated Legislative Council. Bahamas, Barbados, Bermuda. A similar system exists under the Act of 1919 in the Central Government of India. 1914. B. With partly elected Legislative Council with elected majority. British Guiana and Cyprus. 1927. B with partly elected Legislative Council with elected majority. British Guiana, Ceylon, 1934. In 1931, the Constitution was modified and executive and legislative power placed in the hands of a state council with an elected majority working through departmental committees. This novel system falls under no existing category but belongs more properly to 2, B, or 3 above. 
Cyprus, 1934. The Legislative Council was abolished in November 1931, the colony thus reverting temporarily to the status of the territories under four. E. Below. 1914. C. With partly elected legislative council with minority of elected members. Fiji, Jamaica, the Leeward Islands, Federation, Malta, and Mauritius. 1927. C. With partly legislative council with minority of elected members. Fiji, Grenada, Jamaica, Kenya, the Leeward Islands Federation, Mauritius, Nigeria, Colony and Protectorate, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Sierra Leone, Colony and Protectorate, Straits Settlements, Trinidad. 1914, D, with wholly nominated Legislative Council. 1, unofficial majority, British Honduras since 1913. Two, official majority, Ceylon, Falkland Islands, Gambia, Gold Coast, Grenada, Hong Kong, Kenya, then called East African Protectorate, Neasaland Protectorate, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Seychelles, Sierra Leone, Colony and Protectorate, Southern Nigeria, Colony and Protectorate, Straits Settlements, Trinidad. A similar system existed in the central and most of the provincial governments of India. 1927, D, with wholly nominated legislative council, 1, official majority, British Honduras, and 2, official majority, Falkland Islands, Gambia, Gold Coast, Hong Kong, Northern Rhodesia, Nisiland, Protectorate, Seychelles, and Uganda Protectorate, and Zanzibar since 1926. 1914, E, with no legislative council, Ashanti, Basutoland, Bakunaland Protectorate, Gibraltar, Northern Nigeria, Northern Territories of the Gold Coast, St. Helena, Somaliland, Swaziland, Uganda, Wehiwe, islands included under the Western Pacific High Commission. 1927, E with no legislative council, Ashanti, Basutoland, Bakunaland Protectorate, Gibraltar, Northern Territories of Gold Coast, St. Helena, Somaliland, Swaziland, Wehiwe, islands included under the Western Pacific High Commission. 1914, four territories under chartered companies, British North Borneo, Rhodesia. 1927, five territory under chartered company, British North Borneo. 1914, 5, Sudan, Anglo-Egyptian condominium. 1927, 6, Sudan, under British administration, status under negotiation. 1914, 6, Egypt, temporary occupation under British Consul General, with advisors in administration. 1927, 7, territories under international mandate. A, Class A mandates, Palestine, mandatory, Great Britain, Transjordania, mandatory, Great Britain, Iraq, mandatory, Great Britain, 1934, the mandate was terminated in 1932 when Iraq became a member of the League of Nations. B, Class B mandates, Cameroons, mandatory, Great Britain, Tanjanyika, mandatory, Great Britain, 
Togoland, mandatory Great Britain, CE Class C mandates, Southwest Africa, mandatory Union of South Africa, Samoa, mandatory New Zealand, former German Pacific Islands, south of Equator, mandatory Australia, Nauru, mandatory the British Empire, joint arrangement between Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. One wholly new group finds its place in the post-war procession. It consists of certain ex-German and ex-Turkish territories which are under British administration but not under the British flag. These are the mandated areas assigned to Great Britain, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand by the Allied and Associated Powers, subject to the control of the League of Nations exercised through a permanent commission. Here we find worked out for the first time in constitutional form the theory of colonial government as a trusteeship of an experienced power on behalf of the governed. This conception has been implicit in British colonial policy at least since the time of Burke's indictment of Warren Hastings. But its international consecration carries it a long stage farther than that exemplified either in the pronouncement of August 1917 or in the Kenya White Paper. Finally, there remains the change in position of Egypt, which as a result of the war definitely served its connection with Turkey. After a short interregnum as a British protectorate, an unhappy term that gave rise to much misunderstanding, Egypt was in 1922 declared by Great Britain to be a sovereign and independent state, subject to certain reservations on four stated subjects, which were to form the subject of later negotiation. As a result, Egyptians have drawn up their own constitution, nominated ambassadors, ministers, and consuls to foreign powers, and taken over the administration of the country. Agreement has, however, not been yet reached on the four outstanding questions. The rights of foreigners, the control of foreign policy, the Canal Zone, and the Sudan. And pending its accomplishment, a British High Commissioner is still installed at Cairo. The Sudan, on the other hand, is now completely under British administration. The Egyptian troops of the small occupying force having been withdrawn in November 1924. But it is time to turn from the change in the grouping of the procession to a consideration of what is happening at its head. Whither is it moving? What is the consummation of the constitutional process which we have been watching at its various stages? What, in fact, is happening to the group which is emerging from pre-war subordination to a condition of equality with the other sovereign states of the world? What is the situation with which we are confronted through the fact that Canada and the other dominions have passed in varying degrees through a spiritual crisis, a consequent political evolution not dissimilar from that experienced by liberated European communities such as Poland and Czechoslovakia? What is the reaction of this development upon the problem of the constitutional unity of the British Empire? In order to answer these questions, we must take a long view. It is impossible to understand the problem of the British Commonwealth in its present phase unless it is seen in historical perspective. And that history in... It is impossible to understand the problem of the British Commonwealth in its present phase unless it is seen in historical perspective. And that history is best studied in the single example of Canada. Canada is constitutionally the premier dominion, as has indeed been formally recognized in the Irish Treaty. 
where Canada leads, the other dominions generally follow. Let us then briefly look into the history of Canada, far behind 1914, for the roots of what has been happening between the armistice and yesterday are to be found in the annals of the British overseas territories from the 17th century onwards. The key to the problem of dominion status is to be found in one single fact. It is that the Englishman who went overseas in the 17th century considered that he carried with him exactly the same rights as the Englishman who was left at home. He carried them with him as his patrimony because he was an Englishman. You know all about those rights. You do not need to be reminded of the controversy as to whether the assemblies that were set up on the other side of the Atlantic were mere municipal corporations or whether they were replicas of the British House of Commons as it existed in the 17th century. Nor need I recall to your minds how the insistence of New Englanders and others upon the full rights of those assemblies and of the citizens whom they represented led to the breakup of the First Empire. All I would insist on is that it is the constitutional theory familiar to you from your own history which underlies the political sentiments of Canadians and Australians at the present day. What happened to those rights after you passed out of the story? In 1763, King George III had become the sovereign of some 60,000 French settled in the valley of the St. Lawrence. These French-Canadian peasants had no theory of indefeasible rights and no constitutional tradition. They were not accustomed to representative institutions, and they did not demand them. Thus, for about a generation, from 1763 to 1791, there was a setback in British constitutional development. The few hundred Englishmen, traders, and camp followers who had come to live in the St. Lawrence Valley were compelled to forego their rights, much to the indignation of Burke, Fox, Chatham, and other defenders of English liberty at Westminster. Then came a startling new development. As a result of the War of American Independence, thousands of Loyalists moved north across the Canadian border. They had left the new United States in order to remain under British institutions. Of necessity, they must be given a parliament. Should the French be given a parliament too? The question was answered in the Constitutional Act of 1791, which set up two representative assemblies, one for the predominantly French-speaking province of Lower Canada and the other for Upper Canada, where most of the Loyalists had settled. This decision marks a decisive turning point in the history of the British Commonwealth. It established the principle that British liberty and British constitutional rights were not the exclusive patrimony and privilege of the inhabitants of Great Britain and their descendants at home and overseas, but that they rightfully belonged to all those under the British flag who were equal to the responsibilities entailed by them. The representative institutions extended to the French Canadians in 1791 have since been extended to many other nationalities of many different races under the British flag, as we have already had occasion to notice. If today there are three officially bilingual dominions, and if a representative assembly is installed with an Indian speaker or president at Delhi, this is the result of the precedent created by the Act of 1791. What had previously been jus sanguini, a right of Englishmen as Englishmen, came to be acknowledged as jus soli, a system inherent in the territories under British sovereignty and direction. 1791 was a turning point. 
we have now to follow rapidly the new road along which it led. The two assemblies, set up in Upper and Lower Canada, found themselves enjoying the same rights as the English Parliament enjoyed previous to the Civil War between King and Parliament, 150 years before. They could deliberate, but they had no responsibility. Over them was an executive which they could not control, in the shape of a governor or representative of the crown, appointed by the home government and responsible to it alone. The result of this system of semi-paternal government was friction, deadlock, and eventually rebellion. By 1837, both Upper and Lower Canada, both the English and the French, were in arms demanding an extension of their rights. Both risings were easily suppressed. But the home government had not forgotten the lesson of the American Revolution. It sent out as Governor-General of British North America a prominent radical who had made a special study of colonial questions. Lord Durham, and armed him with the widest powers of inquiry and action. Lord Durham's report is one of the classics of British constitutional history. Its main conclusion can be summed up in a sentence. It recommended the cutting off of King Charles's head. In other words, it recommended that the Canadian assemblies be given power over the king's representative, similar to that secured by the English Parliament as the result of the Civil War. There were vicissitudes before Durham's recommendation was accepted, and he himself died a disappointed man. But within 12 years, his son-in-law, Lord Elgin, had become governor-general and was applying the new policy, which was then rapidly extended to the other British colonies growing up in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. It is worthwhile pausing here to notice the point of divergence between the British and American constitutional system. You too experienced the deadlock between governor and assembly. But you did not adopt our British method of turning the governor into a cipher. In fact, you still have the deadlock, but you have turned the difficulty or at least mitigated it by working out an independent relationship between the governor and the people. Hence, the constitutional difference between the President of the United States and the Governor General of Canada, or between the Governor and the State of New York and the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. Thus, in 1849, the principle of responsible government in overseas British communities was definitely established. The rest of the story, from 1849 down to the present day, consists simply of the steady enlargement of the area over which the responsible governments of the Dominions have extended their control. Lord Durham recommended that Canadians should enjoy control over their internal affairs. It did not occur to him that they would desire to extend their control over matters of foreign trade. Still less did he dream that they would wish to develop a foreign policy of their own. But the logic of the doctrine of equal rights is relentless, and it soon began to make itself felt. The first task came in the field of fiscal policy. In 1859, Sir Alexander Galt, the finance minister of the now United Provinces of Upper and Lower Canada, brought in a budget in which he imposed protective duties on foreign goods, including goods from Great Britain. In the eyes of an Englishman, such a budget embodied a double heresy. It was the heyday of the free trade movement, so that protection in any form was distasteful to home opinion, but protection against English goods was more than distasteful to the manufacturers of Manchester, Sheffield, Birmingham, and other centres it seemed intolerable. A violent tug-of-war ensued between Dominion's rights and English manufacturing interests. 
Galt penned a memorable dispatch in which he claimed that Canadian self-government would be utterly annihilated if the Canadian people could not raise their revenue in the way that seemed best to them. The home government yielded, as in 1917 it yielded in a similar tug-of-war between Lancashire and India. And from that day to this, the claim of the complete fiscal autonomy of the Dominions has not been questioned. Those who still dream of a free trade empire or of the British Commonwealth as an economic unit have forgotten the incident of 1859, the developments to which it has given rise in colony after colony, and the unalterable geographical and economical facts of which these developments are the natural outcome. Closely associated with tariffs are commercial treaties. Here, too, Canada early manifested her independence. As early as 1854, the United Provinces entered into a reciprocity treaty with the United States, providing for the free exchange of natural products, which remained in force until 1866. This independence was gradually extended to other spheres, the most striking incident in the story being the German-Canadian Tariff War of 1898-1910. By 1914, it had become an established principle that British commercial treaties should contain a clause excluding the dominions from their provisions, except upon notice of their extension. Next came the demand for consultation with Great Britain on non-domestic questions of imperial concern. This led to the development of the system of colonial conferences, the first of which was held in Ottawa in 1887. But the colonial conference presided over by the colonial secretary, sitting like a wise old uncle at the head of a table of representatives of the younger generation, did not satisfy dominion feeling. In 1907, it was replaced by the imperial conference, presided over now by the prime minister in person, sitting as an equal amongst equals, the prime ministers of the dominions. The next development took place at the Imperial Conference of 1911, when for the first time Dominion statesmen were led into the secrets of British foreign policy and defense. At that time, the home government, in view of the dangerous European situation, hoped that the Dominions would decide to contribute either money or ships to the Imperial Navy. Another way, however, was chosen. Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Premier, who had consented in London to urge his countrymen to make a direct contribution to the Imperial Navy, was unable to carry his measure through Parliament, which preferred that Canada should develop her own land and sea forces. A similar development took place in Australia. Then came the war. What were the constitutional developments of the war period? The most striking was undoubtedly the admission of Dominion representatives to what was called the Imperial War Cabinet. During the latter part of the war, from 1917 onward, Dominion statesmen sat side by side with members of the London government on the small executive which was in supreme control of Britain's war effort. Moreover, by a curious development which shows what can happen under an unwritten and flexible constitution, one of these Dominion statesmen, General Smuts, who remained in England for some time, became almost an ordinary member of the cabinet and was even on occasion asked to deal with specifically domestic matters. But, in fact, the Imperial War Cabinet was not a true constitutional development, and its title was a misnomer. It was simply a standing war conference consisting of members of several independent governments. 
similar to the inter-allied conferences which grew up at the same time, but of course, more continuous and more intimate. More permanently important was the Imperial Conference held simultaneously with it, which passed a resolution definitely extending the principle of equality to foreign affairs and favored the summoning of a special constitution conference after the war. The resolution is important enough to be quoted textually. It laid down that any readjustment of constitutional relations while thoroughly preserving all existing powers of self-government and complete control of domestic affairs, should be based upon a full recognition of the dominions as autonomous nations of an imperial commonwealth, and of India as an important portion of the same, should recognize the right of dominions in India to an adequate vote in foreign policy and in foreign relations, and should provide effective arrangements for continuous consultation in all important matters of common imperial concern and for such necessary concerted action founded on consultation as the several governments may determine. The words imperial commonwealth may appear to you somewhat paradoxical. There may seem to be a little difference of philosophy between the adjective and the noun, but the very fact marks the transitional stage at which Britain had arrived at that moment. It should be added that the Constitutional Conference provided for in the 1917 resolution was never summoned, its work being taken up by the Ordinary Conference of 1926. Much of great interest, both in itself and for its bearing on the problem of common international action in the future, might be said about the cooperation between Great Britain and the Dominions during the war. But we must hasten on to the post-war period. What has been the constitutional development since 1918? I well remember a certain day in December 1918 when, as I was working in my room in the British Foreign Office, somebody entered in a condition of much excitement and told us that Canada wished to be represented at the peace conference and was even taking an interest in the League of Nations. It was very inconvenient. What was the Foreign Office to do? Well, what could it do? Canada's losses were as heavy as Belgium's. Canada had morally and materially as much right to share in those deliberations as the smaller allies. Once more, as always in this story, Downing Street acquiesced. Canada secured what she wished, and the other dominions followed her lead. The result of separate dominion representation at Paris was that the dominions signed the peace treaties in their own right and were left free to submit them to their own parliaments for ratification or not, as they pleased. Had the project of the Special Guarantee Treaty between Britain, France, and the United States been proceeded with, several of the Dominions would probably not have signed it. And Great Britain would have had to face already in 1919 the problem of the diplomatic unity of the Empire. The principle of separate representation led on naturally to the admission of the Dominions into the League of Nations. Their exact status in the League is a matter on which there was for some years disagreement in high quarters. The British members of the League consist of the British Empire, the five self-governing dominions, and India. Does the British Empire include the whole empire or only that part of it, Great Britain and the non-self-governing dominions, not separately represented? Supporters of the former view used to point to the fact that in the official list of League members, the Dominions and India were placed immediately after Great Britain. 
out of the proper alphabetical order. But this attempt to solve a naughty constitutional problem by a printer's device has now been abandoned. Already in 1919, Dominions received a written assurance from the president of the Paris Conference, which drew up the Covenant of the League, that they would be eligible for election as non-permanent members of the Council, in spite of the permanent seat assigned to that body to the British Empire. And their claim was reaffirmed, with the acquiescence of the delegation of Great Britain and the Assembly of 1926. It must be added that the British Empire and the Dominions by no means always take the same view or vote the same way at Geneva. The seven British votes are anything but a solid phalanx, and is very natural in view of the divergent local interests that they represent. The next development was one which, when it occurred in Northern Europe, caused the breakup of a sovereign state, the right of separate diplomatic representation when Norway, after a long negotiation, secured that right from Sweden. It proved the occasion of her entry into international society as an independent member. Canada secured that right in 1920, when the British government publicly acquiesced in her wish to have separate diplomatic representation at Washington. For technical reasons, the appointment was delayed until 1926 when Mr. Vincent Massey was nominated, but the Irish Free State at once took advantage of the concession. Thus, today, the Canadian and Irish representatives at Washington hold their posts side by side with the British ambassador, cooperating with him in regard to Irish and Canadian questions of imperial concern, on exactly the same terms of independence as they would deal with the representative of a foreign power. The full results of the principle, thus conceded, remain to be seen. But the extension of Dominion diplomatic systems in these days of rapidly increasing contacts is only a matter of time and convenience. The next important issue which presented itself raised in a peculiarly acute form the problem as to how the foreign relations of the empire were to be conducted under the new conditions and whether unity of policy could be maintained among communities whose interest was so widely divergent. The treaty between Great Britain and Japan was due to expire in the summer of 1921. Should it be renewed? The British Foreign Office was in favor of its renewal, and its view was shared by the majority of the Dominions. But an imperial conference held at that time revealed the fact that the Canadian Premier, Mr. Megan, was strongly opposed to renewal. Relations between Japan and the United States at that moment were not the best, and Canada was unwilling to take a step which would be viewed unfavorably by her neighbors to the south. It was an extremely difficult issue. To terminate the first treaty at the wish of a single dominion would not only have jeopardized important interests in Great Britain and the other dominions, but it would have established the principle that each self-governing member of the Commonwealth had a veto upon the policies of its partners. This conception, which had already been put forward on a previous occasion by General Smuts, would have introduced into the British Commonwealth, in an age when swift decisions are often imperative, the liberum veto that contributed to the downfall of Poland. Mr. Megan attempted to turn the difficulty by arguing that each member of the Imperial Conference should have a decisive voice in regard to policies in his own particular region. 
But it was difficult to maintain that Canada had a larger stake in the Far East than Great Britain. And this attempt to divide the empire into regions, each with a Monroe Doctrine of its own, has since been tacitly abandoned. A way out of the immediate difficulty was found by continuing the treaty for a further year and then merging it in the four-power pact of Pacific powers worked out at the Washington Conference. But this compromise, which was due to the intervention of the United States, left the difficulty of principle unsolved. We shall meet it again later on in our discussion. The next important post-war development concerned the question of peace and war. Up to 1914, it was assumed that when Great Britain was at war, the Empire was at war. In September 1922, however, this theory was unexpectedly put to the test and emerged greatly weakened. The Greek army had been routed by the Turks, who pursued it to the Dardanelles, where, at the port of Chanak, they were held up by a British detachment. The government of the day, holding the defense of the Dardanelles to be a major British interest, was prepared to resist a Turkish attack by force of arms and called to the Dominions asking for the cooperation. The Canadian Premier refused to pledge himself to a favorable answer. Under our system of responsible government, he stated in the Canadian House of Commons, the Canadian Parliament should determine, except in the case of threatened or actual invasion, whether the country should participate in wars in which other nations or other parts of the British Empire may be involved. Fortunately, the crisis passed, but its lesson remains. For the first time, a member of the British Commonwealth claimed the right to decide for itself whether it should go to war or remain neutral when Great Britain was involved in hostilities. The next development concerned the right to make separate treaties without the signature of the representative of the imperial government. It arose in 1923 in connection with what was called the Halibut Treaty. Canada negotiated the treaty with the United States in the usual way, but the imperial government desired that when it was signed, the British ambassador at Washington, in accordance with the hitherto recognized practice, should affix his signature to it also. Canada contested that right, and as a result, she had her way. At the next imperial conference in the autumn of 1923, it was laid down that bilateral treaties imposing obligations on one part of the empire only should be signed by a representative of the government of that part. The full powers issued to such representation by the crown should indicate the part of the empire in respect of which the obligations are to be undertaken and the preamble and text of the treaty should be worded as to make its scope clear. It is true that it was also stated in a subsequent resolution that there was to be consultation between different members of the Commonwealth before they negotiated treaties. But such consultation is a frequent feature of relations between independent states, as, for instance, between the different members of the Little Entente. And it cannot be argued that constitutionally an agreement to consult and to cooperate constitutes membership of a common state. Thus, the principle was laid down that treaties, whether commercial or political, may be negotiated and signed separately by different parts of the British Commonwealth. The next difficulty or controversy or development, whichever you like to call it, arose in connection with the signature of the peace treaty with Turkey. In the other peace treaties, representatives of the Dominions had taken part in the deliberations. 
it so happened that in the negotiation of the Turkish treaty, for reasons that seemed sufficient to the British foreign secretary at the time, the dominions were not called in. When therefore the question of ratification arose, the Canadian premier took the position that since Canada had not taken part in the negotiations and was therefore not a signatory of the resulting treaty, my ministers do not feel that they are in a position to recommend to Parliament approval of the treaty. Without the approval of Parliament, they feel that they are not warranted in signifying approval and ratification of the treaty. Thus, the Turkish treaty remained unratified by Canada who is not bound by the obligations assumed in it by Great Britain. The Canadian Premier here lays down two doctrines. First, that the Canadian government can take no responsibility for treaties which it has not itself helped to negotiate. And secondly, that as an executive, it will not ratify a treaty without the approval of Parliament. The first is a doctrine of self-determination. The second, a doctrine of democratic control of foreign policy. Together, they constitute a considerable innovation in the British system. The next issue is that arising out of the registration of the Irish Treaty at the Secretariat of the League of Nations. I speak of it as the Irish Treaty, though perhaps strictly I have no right to do so. From the point of view of the British government, it was an act of Parliament which terminated a state of rebellion and brought about better relations between two sections of the King's realm by constituting a new dominion, the Irish Free State. But on the theory of the other party to the treaty, it was an international engagement between the Irish Republic and the British Empire. On that view, the Irish government deposited the treaty at Geneva for registration. It was accepted by those responsible for carrying on the routine work at Geneva. The fact that a clerk has accepted a document and put in it a pigeonhole is not itself any argument one way or the other as to its character or validity. That must rest to be determined, if the question is ever reopened, by an international court of justice. But the controversy about the Irish Treaty raises two questions. The first is a question which concerns only Great Britain and Ireland, namely whether the Irish Republic which the Irish considered to have been one of the parties of the treaty, was an international entity and would therefore come into existence again if the treaty were denounced. The second is whether engagements made between different members of the British Commonwealth, who were themselves members of the League of Nations, are international documents or domestic documents, whether they are the concern of the Society of Nations or whether they are not. Finally, I must refer briefly to the relation of the dominions to the various schemes drawn up in Europe to deal with the problem of security. The two most important of these are the Geneva Protocol and the Rhine Guarantee Pact negotiated at Locarno. It has been inevitable ever since 1920, when the United States refused to sign the Special Guarantee Treaty, that the security problem would raise, as between Canada and Great Britain, the whole problem of the diplomatic unity of the empire. Great Britain is part of Europe and cannot isolate herself from the European system. Canada shares with the United States a fear of entangling alliances. Thus, both as regards the Geneva Protocol, which the government of Great Britain has rejected, and the Rhine Pact, which it has accepted, Canada has pursued a separate policy. She did not indeed sign the protocol but her reasons for not doing so were different from the reasons which actuated Great Britain. 
Great Britain refused to sign, partly because she was unwilling to make an advance in respect of arbitration. Canada, on the other hand, took occasion expressly to affirm her desire for an advance in that domain. Thus, the Locarno Pact, which contains less of arbitration and more of security than its predecessor, is even less palatable to Canadian opinion and marked the occasion of a definite divergence of policy upon a first-class issue between a Dominion and Great Britain and led inevitably to the definite affirmation of Dominion independence at the Imperial Conference of 1926. But this raises considerations that must be left for a subsequent lecture, for it is time to sum up. It is clear that the whole process which we have been watching from the 17th century down to the events of the day, shows the same steady drift and direction. It is clear also that each of the incidents to which I have pointed in the post-war period must have caused a shock to those who still conceive of the British Empire in pre-war terms. The community which is discussed, whether all parts of it are necessarily at war at once, or whether parts can remain at peace while others are at war, is necessarily very different from the clearly defined sovereign state of 1914. On the day that the Canadian correspondence relating to the Treaty of Lausanne was published in the press, I happened to be calling on a British diplomat in a foreign capital. Have you seen this morning's news, he asked me. The empire is breaking up. Canada has refused to ratify the Turkish Treaty. That diplomat was still living in the pre-war world. I prefer to disassociate myself from his pessimism and to share the view expressed by Sir Robert Borden in his address to the students at Queen's University. Three quarters of a century ago, he said, political prophets declared that responsible government in the British colonies would shatter the fabric of the empire. Today, there are short-sighted men who sincerely believe that the national status which the Dominions have attained will have the like result. On the contrary, I am convinced that the status which we gained at Paris, as well as the proposals, strongly controverted, which I placed before Parliament in 1920 for the appointment of a Canadian minister at Washington, but under such limitations as to preserve the diplomatic unity of the empire, will result not in weakening, but in strengthening the real ties that bind together the nations of the British Commonwealth. In succeeding lectures, we will examine the nature of those real ties of which Sir Robert Borden speaks, and indicate the policy or policies which, as I believe, will strengthen them to do the work which I firmly believe the British Empire still can do, and ought to do for the peace of the world and the welfare of humanity. Appendix to Lecture 1. 1. The Pronouncement on Indian Policy of 20th of August, 1917. The policy of His Majesty's Government, with which the Government of India is in complete accord, is that of the increasing association of Indians in every branch of the administration and the gradual development of self-governing institutions. With a view to the progressive realization of responsible government in India as an integral part of the British Empire, I would add that progress in this policy can only be achieved by successive stages. The British government and the government of India, on whom the responsibility lies for the welfare and advancement of the Indian peoples, must be the judges of the time and measure of each advance, and they must be guided by the cooperation received from those whom 
upon new opportunities of service will thus be conferred, and by the extent to which it is found that confidence can be reposed in their sense of responsibility. Statement in the House of Commons by the retired Honorable E.S. Montagal, MP, Secretary of State for India. Two, extract from the Kenya White Paper, 1923. Indians in Kenya, memorandum presented to Parliament by command of His Majesty, July 1923. Primarily, Kenya is an African territory, and His Majesty's government think it necessary, definitely, to record their considered opinion that the interests of the African natives must be paramount, and that if and when these interests and the interests of the immigrant races should conflict, the former should prevail. In the administration of Kenya, His Majesty's government regard themselves as exercising a trust on behalf of the African population, and they are unable to delegate or share this trust, the object of which may be defined as the protection and advancement of the native races. It is not necessary to attempt to elaborate this position. Lines of development are as yet in many important directions undetermined, and many difficult problems arise which require time for their solution. But there can be no room for doubt that it is the mission of Great Britain to work continuously for the training and education of the Africans towards a higher intellectual, moral, and economic level than which they had reached when the Crown assumed the responsibility for the administration of this territory. 3. Declaration by the retired Honorable Sir George Foster, CGMG, Principal Delegate of Canada, the Seventh Assembly of the League of Nations, September 15, 1926. I think it is right at this stage that we should say to this Assembly and to the League of Nations itself that we consider that we have equal rights to representation on the Council and otherwise with every one of the 56 members of the League of Nations. 4. Extract from the Report of the Inter-Imperial Relations Committee of the Imperial Conference, 1926. The committee are of the opinion that nothing would be gained by attempting to lay down a constitution for the British Empire. Its widely scattered parts have a very different characteristics, very different histories, and are at a very different stage of evolution, while, considered as a whole, it defies classification and bears no real resemblance to any other political organization which now exists or has ever yet been tried. There is, however, one most important element in which, from a strictly constitutional point of view, has now, as regards all vital matters, reached its full development. We refer to the group of self-governing communities composed of Great Britain and the Dominions. Their position and mutual relation may be readily defined. They are autonomous communities within the British Empire, equal in status, in no way subordinate one to another in any aspect of the domestic or external affairs. Though united by a common allegiance to the Crown and freely associated as members of the British Commonwealth of Nations, a foreigner endeavouring to understand the true character of the British Empire by the aid of this formula alone would be tempted to think that it was devised rather to make mutual interference impossible than to make mutual cooperation easy. Such a criticism, however, completely ignores the historic situation. The rapid evolution of the overseas dominions during the last 50 years has involved many complicated adjustments of old political machinery to changing conditions. 
The tendency towards equality of status was both right and inevitable. Geographical and other conditions made this impossible of attainment by the way of federation. The only alternative was by the way of autonomy, and along this road it has been steadily sought. Every self-governing member of the empire is now the master of its destiny. In fact, if not always in form, it is subject to no compulsion whatever. But no account, however accurate, of the negative relations in which Great Britain and the Dominion stand to each other can do more than express a portion of the truth. The British Empire is not founded upon negations. It depends essentially, if not formally, on positive ideals. Free institutions are its lifeblood. Free cooperation is its instrument. Peace, security, and progress are among its objects. Aspects of all these great themes have been discussed at the present conference. Excellent results have been thereby obtained. And though every dominion is now, and must always remain, the sole judge of the nature and extent of its cooperation, no common cause will, in our opinion, be thereby imperiled. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.